Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart, welcoming you back here at the end of the week for another weekly market recap featuring my soft spoken and shy friend, Lance Roberts, who always has trouble telling us what he thinks. He just can't get the words out. Exactly. That's the way it's going to be this week, too. <laughs> Actually, it's not, I'm sure, because there's a lot going on this week, Lance. Um, so, a lot to get through here. Um, so let's start with the markets. Um, last week, I, I made the inappropriate uh, comment that the market had ED, that it had exuberance dysfunction. We kept having these, these daily rallies that would start in the morning, and then they'd just kind of like flop around and, and end flaccidly at the end of the day. Um, now it's kind of just fallen into full-blown full um, impotence in the market, if you will. Um, but uh, we seem to be going according to the script that you've been saying we should see for the past couple months or so of like, look, you, stocks got really ahead of themselves. They were getting overvalued. You expected some sort of pullback. You said three to 10%. Um, we've now passed the 3% stage. I don't know exactly what percentage we're on now, but we're, 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 we're heading in the direction towards 10. And as you predicted, we're beginning to see the first sort of headlines media sound bites out there of like, wow, you know, maybe this was a bull trap. And, you know, a, a number of people today are saying, hey, maybe this is the big rollover. And all of a sudden people are starting to pontificate of how far the S&P could fall if uh, the, the bottom drops out. So we're beginning to see that bearish negativity that you said we would start to see. Are you changing your thesis at all? Or do you feel pretty confident here that this is, you know, what you expected and you you, you think, you know, it'll it'll play out and S&P will start rising again as we head into the second half of the year? Um, well, I'll tell you what, let's uh, start with uh, a share screen here. As we talked about before, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's always interesting because, you know, we go to these extremes, right? When markets are going up, it's like, oh my gosh, nothing can stop this market. And as we were talking about, it's like, today, look, it's a function of time. You're going to have a correction. It's completely normal. And then, of course, and as I said, as soon as we start to have the correction, everybody's going to go, oh, my God, now it's never going to start selling off. It's just, you know, it's interest rates and it's the Fed or whatever. And there's always a reason why, think, you know, that things are doing something. And it's never just the fundamental fact that markets ebb and flow over time. But as investors and as the media and as everybody else, we always have to have a reason for it, right? We've got to we've got to assign something to this. Oh, that explains why this is happening. And sometimes, really, they have nothing to do with each other. It's just a a a, a an environment that allows something to occur. And we've talked about this before: is that when markets are going up, everybody's bullish, so nobody wants to sell anything because, well, I might miss on further upside. And then eventually, something happens. And it's like, okay, well, I'll, I'll sell now. And as soon as somebody raises their hand over here and says, okay, I, I want to be a seller, then everybody else jumps over there to be sellers. And that's how markets work. And so, again, it's not always just a function of, oh, there's this reason and now everything has changed. It's just a function of markets going through their normal kind of cycle process. And so this was what we talked about in July is that, look, markets were very overbought. Um, we're going to get a sell signal. And when we do, then markets are going to have this three to five to 10% correction. And that'll be a good buying opportunity. We'll get markets back to oversold. We'll have a, a good entry point. And so I'm showing you a chart right now. This is the market versus the 20 the, uh, and the, the 50 day, and uh, sorry, the 20, the 100 and the 200 day moving average. So we violated the 20 day moving average, which it was the that's the blue line. And that was kind of that clear kind of bullish support line over the last couple of months. 
And we cut through that. We went right through the 50-day moving average. And so now we're approaching that 100-day moving average. And that's really, really good support for the market, kind of historically, the 200-day being really good support for the market, because that's the average price over 100 days. The, over the last 100 days, the market has traded either above or below that price. So it should provide, just from a technical price support point, that's going to be a, a point to where investors step in and go, okay, I need to put some money back to work here. Markets have had a big decline. Some things have gone on sale. So I'm going to put some money back to work. And so we're probably, and, and again, markets now very oversold. And um, you know, this is probably the point to see some step back in and we'll kind of have the next leg of whatever this is going to be. So we might get a rally back to the 20 day that fails. And then maybe we, we try another retest of the 100 or maybe we can go to the 200 uh, over the next couple of months. Um, or maybe we find a bottom here and kind of, you know, kind of just gyrate around a bit through the month of September. And then we're going to move into the last couple of months of the year, October, November, December. And there's a lot of going to be a lot of performance chasing this year. A lot of portfolio managers are well behind the curve. They've got to get caught up here. And, 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 and so they're going to be really kind of focused on getting allocations and equity to work because at the end of the year, when they report performance, they better have all those right positions on their portfolio. They better own the Apples, the NVIDIAs, the Amazons, whatever it is. They better have that on their books and their performance needs to be fairly close to the market. Otherwise, they, they, they suffer career risk. So there's going to be a big push by investors in the end of the year to get capital put to work, barring something out of the unexpected happening. So in other words, the Fed comes out, does something completely unexpected, slashes rates by 100 basis points, um, you know, a recession shows up just markedly out of nowhere. And we'll talk about GDP growth, this, uh, what the Atlanta Fed is saying now. But you know, there's certainly something that can happen that nobody's expecting that can certainly change that outcome. But right now, there's nothing technically wrong with the market. In fact, this, this pullback is extremely healthy. It's an opportunity to put capital to work, and I wouldn't ignore it. Okay, great. So I just want to underscore, um, you are not sweating here that, you know, the thesis that you've been putting out for the past couple of months uh, is in danger. Now, obviously, we're going to keep watching this chart every week. And if it, you know, starts going down to the 200-day moving average and maybe breaks through that, yeah, then maybe maybe you might. But right now, this is what you expected. Um, I'm summarizing correctly? Yes. Okay. So um, we're going to get to your specific trades a bit in this discussion, but um, are you actively adding positions now, now that we're sort of down on this trajectory, or are you just waiting to see further how this plays out? No, I actually know, um, you know, we, we've been kind of continuing during this whole decline, continuing to rebalance the portfolio, restructure things, kind of look at, you know, kind of where things are, you know, going to be over the rest of this year. Um, you know, and, and so, no, we're, we're actually have been putting capital to work and we're going to continue to do that. We've still got a little bit of capital left sitting in cash, um, probably over the next, you know, week to two to next month. Uh, we'll get that month, we'll get the last of that capital put to work. And so we'll probably be fully, fairly allocated uh, equity to bond wise heading into the end of the year. Okay. Um, all right. So, you know, your advice to, to bears, which I'm putting these words in your mouth. So feel free to, to uh, amend them any way you like, but is, is you're not seeing a reason here to, uh, you know, start ringing the, the sky is falling bell or, you know, 
time to get all your you know bearish shorts on the market because the sucker's going down. Um, correct. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that it's a fair. There, there's nothing out there. And again, so we need to shift back and talk about some economics here real quick. But there's nothing on the horizon right now that suggests anything's wrong. Yeah, and again, we're going to get to the uh, the GDP now numbers in just a second. Before we hop off this chart, though, um, you've mentioned these in the past, but if you could just very quickly for viewers. Just define what MACD and the stochastic charts are here. That's the, the chart at the top, the chart at the bottom, um, because these are some of the indicators that help you determine that the market is getting oversold, correct? Absolutely. We have, we have, you know, we, we keep technical, look, there's a lot of people that get super into technical analysis and there's so many ways to, you know, do technical analysis. Everybody has their own way. This is just the way that we do it. Um, we keep it very simplistic. We use a couple of moving averages to determine the trend of the market. Um, the MACD indicator at the top is basically just our buy-sell signals. They, they provide good signals over time. Are they always absolutely 100% correct? No. Uh, but more often than not, particularly can, when coming from either high or low levels, they provide really good signals to increase or decrease exposure. Um, and then on the bottom, we just have basically what's an overbought, oversold indicator. So you know, over the short term, things get really overbought. Um, in other words, you have all, you know, everybody who's going to buy is bought. And then at, at, when markets sell off, everybody that's going to sell is sold. And, and so what those kind of what that indicator tells you is if I can get, you know, kind of, you know, markets holding support and the markets oversold, that's probably a reasonable risk reward opportunity to put some money to work in the markets. And, and so it's just a function. We keep things very simple. We don't really kind of go crazy with stuff in, in terms of trying to, to, to predict things. But, you know, what, uh, whoops, I didn't mean to do that. Um, so, you know, what's important though is, is that as we kind of look at things is to try to understand where maximums and minimums are. And so if you kind of look at the MACD is at the top, this is just the difference between a 50, uh, sorry, 12, uh, 12 day and a 26 day moving average. That's all it is. And so when those cross over each other, either from the low turning up or from the top turning down, that tells you that prices are either rising or falling. And, and so we're looking for, you know, confirmation that we're now getting prices moving in kind of one general direction. Like right now, we're on a sell signal suggesting that prices are trending lower. And so markets are moving down. And, you know, and we're about back to the range. If you kind of look at the bottom of, of where these this kind of oscillation is and, and think about the MACD as an oscillator. Uh, so it's just something that just kind of oscillates up and down. So at the top, I want to be a seller. At the bottom, I want to be a buyer. So we're about back to the bottom of a normal oscillation range in a bullish cycle. Now, I want to, I want to be really clear about that, because if we if we pull back and we look at where we were last year, that oscillation gets a lot deeper during a bear market. In other words, you get these bear market, kind of these bearish market corrections that are a lot deeper. So the, the MACD can travel a lot further to the downside. But when you're in a bullish type uh, kind of setup where we are now, um, oh, I went the wrong way. Um, but if, if you look at where we are at the moment, you know, we're kind of in this bullish trend in the market. So these oscillations are more shallow. So we're getting down to the bottom of that normal oscillation in a bullish cycle, which suggests that my buying opportunity is, is likely nearby versus what I, I would be waiting for a deeper correction if we were still in a corrective mode like we were last year. Got it. Okay. 
<laughs> All right. Well, you know, we'll keep our eye on this as we revisit this chart week after week going forward. Um, all right, let's. I do want to get to the the GDP now forecast that we've been sort of mentioning here, but real quick, let's get there via the Fed because we had some you know additional data this week where the the minutes from the Fed's July meeting were released to the public this week, um, and we learned a couple of things um, uh, that the, the the open market committee you know feels like they're making good progress on. Uh, taming inflation, and they are, right? They've gotten the headline CPI down from nine something to three something, right? Mm -hmm. um, but they still see it as a threat. Uh, and they do think that more hikes may be needed here. There's been a lot of back and forth, you know, about whether to continue hiking or not. Um, but very, very notably, nobody's talking about cutting. And actually, Neil Kashkari, who's kind of a famous dove on the Fed, has come out and said, we are nowhere near cutting rates, folks. So they are continuing kind of the higher for longer uh, story still. Um, but uh, one of the things that I that I sort of take away from the, the inflation fight right now, and I'd like to get your thoughts on it, Lance, is I think the Pareto rule is kind of coming into play here, you know, 80-20. Mm -hmm. they, yeah. they got the easy 80% of inflation down. And the question is, 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 is the next, is the remaining 20%, you know, getting getting headline CPI back down to two or even lower, is, is that remaining 20% going to take kind of 80% of the effort here, right? It's the sticky stuff that, that that's that's hard to get out of the system here. Um, love to get your reaction to that. Get a few other questions on this too, then I'll ask. Sure. Yeah, well, first of all, you're reading way too much into the Fed minutes and, and you know, got to remember. <laughs> uh, and what I mean by that, and, and what I mean by that is this, is that, you know, if you and I had a meeting, Right. So you and I are going to have this closed door meeting. We have a secretary there and she's like, uh, you know, um, sorry about that. She's like taking notes and she's, you know, we have a stenographer and she's like taking down every word that we're talking about. And then we publish those. Then that would be a, a really good look at what you and I were thinking behind closed doors. Right. But that's not what happens with the Fed. The Fed has these has this meeting and then they carefully craft these minutes yeah. to put out a message that they want for the markets to read. They, they know the markets are going to look at this and parse every little word of it. And what the Fed needs right now is they don't need higher stock prices, right? That feeds into consumer confidence, which we've already seen is ticking up here. Consumer confidence is improving. Inflation expectations are falling by the consumer. That's not what the Fed wants, because that means the consumer goes out and spends money. Then as they go out and spend money, that creates economic demand, which creates inflation. So and this is this is Ben Bernanke 101 back in 2010, where he says the reason we're doing QE is to boost asset prices, to boost consumption, to boost economic growth. That's not what the Fed wants here. So they're going to carefully craft this opinion that says, don't tell the markets we're getting ready to cut rates, because that means that they're going to run stock prices up. And that's just going to put more pressure on easing financial conditions, which is exactly what we're trying to not do, is ease financial conditions. We want financial conditions to tighten. And, and, and so we've got to really kind of look past what the minutes say and say, what's the Fed going to do? Look, we've already said for a long time, the Fed's not anywhere close to cutting rates. Why? Markets are going up. Economic growth is fine. Why would I cut rates? Right? There's no reason. Right. And, and unemployment low. And unemployment's low. So there's no reason to cut rates. I'm not going to go waste my ammo 
today cutting rates when there's no reason to cut rates. Why am I going to cut rates? Well, unemployment jumps up. The economy starts to slow down. The consumer begins to contract. I need to make sure we don't wind up in deflation. See, the Fed doesn't care about disinflation. Nine to three, that's disinflation. We still got positive inflation. That's okay. Economically, that's good. 3% inflation, economic growth at two, two and a half, three percent That's exactly what you would expect to happen with inflation. Those two should correlate. And somewhere right around there, that's where interest rates need to be. So everything is actually not in a bad position economically at the moment. Everything's working fine. So why would I cut rates here? Now, once we begin to get closer to that 2% mark, or you go below 2% and you start getting to a threat of deflation, that's where the Fed's going to go, okay, now we got to cut rates. We can't, we don't, because the hardest thing is it's easy to bring inflation down. It's really hard to combat deflation because that's a psychological entrenchment. When you get into deflation, consumers go, I'm not buying anything because prices are just going to keep going lower. Just like everybody last year was going, prices are only going to go higher. So we've yeah. got so the, the big fear for the Fed is going to be deflation. That's where they're going to cut rates. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I get it. But I mean, Powell has said many times, and I believe him, where he said, like, look, if I'm if I'm going to be in danger of under tightening or over tightening, I'm going to go into over tightening because yeah. I know how to stimulate a sluggish economy. Exactly. Right? That's exactly I can do that easily. Point. Right. Yeah, yeah that's, well, but that's exactly my point is that, you know, I'm not worried about about doing anything. If I over tighten, that's fine because I can cut rates to zero tomorrow. Right. 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 OK, so maybe we're saying the same thing here. We but basically, we're, we're saying exactly the same thing. Everybody's basically saying, look, the, you know, the Fed's probably not going to hike from here. If you look at the CME uh, Fed Watch tool, I think it's got like a like a 13 percent uh, probability uh, of a Fed hike from here. Yep. Um, so, you know, markets aren't really expecting it. All I'm saying is, is for the reasons we're talking about. I don't know if they're out of bullets yet. Right. I mean, I think the Fed and you and I have talked about maybe they should, maybe they should wait for the lag effect, you know, all that type of stuff. But I think given their proclivities, it would not surprise me at all for the Fed to tighten again, maybe even more than once still. Everyone thinks if they tighten again, it's going to be the very last one. Maybe, but I'm not sure that that's something we should be taking necessarily to the bank. Um, now, what's interesting is, um, you know, you were talking about why should the Fed tighten? Because uh, or why should the Fed cut? I agree, they're not going to cut anytime soon, but why should they cut with the conditions that you just mentioned? Now let's go to the GDP <laughs> now number, right? right? I mean, the GDP now forecast, which we know will come down, it always does, but it's at 5.8% right now. Yeah, and, and, and look, and this is a bit unusual, right? We're we're a month and a half into the quarter. Normally by this time, the Fed, the GDP now is getting cut it's not getting cut. It keeps going up. It's still right? rising. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm showing a chart of it while we're talking here, Lance, um, so people can see directly. Yeah. So it is. It, that is a bit aberrant. So I, I want to tie this back to something I've been talking about in this channel a lot, and I can't remember if I've talked about it with you directly or not, but we have this really interesting battle going on policy-wise right now, right? Where we've got the Fed out there jamming the brakes hard, Right. It's it's most aggressive rate hike campaign in history. It's doing QT at the same time. The banking system is piling on by tightening credit lending standards. And so both of those things are really pushing hard on the, the economic brakes, trying to slow the economy. Well, for the Fed to bring demand down, bring inflation down. Right. Uh, banks are just doing it because they don't want to. They're worried and they don't want to have bad loans on their their balance sheets. 
But on the fiscal policy side of things, as I said on this channel before, like we've got a wartime deficit going on right now, right? We've got you know, historically aberrantly aggressive deficit spending here, which is essentially jamming on the gas pedal. And that presumably boosts the economy. Well, that will, will boost the economy. Presumably, that's maybe what we're seeing now in this Q3 GDP number is this really shockingly high real GDP forecast. Now, of course, the, the danger there, right, is that that supports inflation, right? That's just one of the risks of, of big fiscal intervention like that is that you, you it's, it adds to the inflationary pressure. So in many ways, you know, I think the Fed is like looking over at the, the to the administration and being like, dudes, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> I've spent the past year and a half trying to get inflation under control. And what the hell are you guys doing over here? So what's your take on all this? I mean, is this is this kind of, uh, you know, a battle royale from from the, the, the power players policy wise? And is, is this just, you know, a, a disunited strategy that could end up in something pretty chaotic? This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Well, so it's funny you say that because I just wrote an article about this today. (laughs) Shocked. Shocked am I. <laughs> Shocked, I tell you. Yes. On the website today, realinvestmentadvice.com. Uh, recession, is it coming or is it not? Uh, that's you know, this is the big question. You know, last year, everybody expected a recession. We said it was the most anticipated recession ever. Um, and we had all this monetary liquidity being dumped in that was creating inflation. And you know, this year, the, the question is now, as is, is, well, is a recession coming or not? We obviously have all these, these indicators uh, that suggests a recession is coming, and yet it's not here yet. And that's been very frustrating. In fact, now we've got 5.8% economic growth for the third quarter. We've got inflation ticking up, you know, a little bit here from the year-over-year kind of mathematical effects that are going on. But uh, again, this has really been the whole conundrum. And, and specifically to your point, you know, we take a look at, you know, the 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 impact of monetary supply as you know, there's just so much of this money that's still in the economy, this, you know, this M2 is a percentage of GDP, which started accelerating back in 2008. Um, so you kind of take a look and, you know, here's the financial crisis. Um, and this is where we started doing, you know, HAMP, HARP, TARP, you know, all this other stuff. And then you can see the spike in monetary supply during the pandemic. So, you know, the recent influx of monetary liquidity is not new. It's just just magnitudes larger than what we had seen over the previous 13 years. And remember, over the previous 13 years, we didn't really have any inflation to speak of. It wasn't causing a lot of inflation because it was all very, it was all kind of driven behind the scenes. It was mostly just the government doing some things. You know, the difference was that this time we said, hey, here's a new idea. Let's send checks directly to households where they'll spend it in the economy. So we got this massive surge. You can see that spike in GDP that was a function of just all that liquidity hitting the market. So we've got to get that out. So inflation's going to come down over time, just as monetary, this monetary stimulus fades away. But, you know, it's not just, and again, we've said this before, is that it's not just those stimulus checks, because if it was just that, 
we wouldn't, we'd already be probably a lot further down this path of disinflation and deflationary pressures and probably much slower economic growth. The problem though is again, um, you know, uh, we, we take a look at what the Federal Reserve is doing. Again, this deficit starting to expand where if you kind of draw an exponential growth trend line and strip out that spending we had in, in during the COVID pandemic, We've got a record deficit right now. Right. And, so, and sorry to interrupt, you said what the Fed is doing, but this is really what I'm the, sorry, this is the government administration is doing. Yeah, so. Exactly. Um, and, and that's coming from that, um, that you know, $1.7 trillion in fiscal stimulus that really came through through that Inflation Reduction Act. A lot of that is, is now showing up. There was a recent article uh, last week from Bloomberg talking about the tale of two cities in North Carolina. One's building this $500 billion uh, million dollar, uh, kind of AI technology plant that is going to create all these high-end jobs. And the other the other cities is uh, developing a, a Purina, building a dog, dog and cat food plant that's going to hire a bunch of people. But that's all direct contributions from this onshoring idea, this Inflation Reduction Act, all that money that was sitting there that's now going out. You can see federal spending as a function, this is quarter over quarter changes, we're clipping over 9% growth in federal spending every quarter now. And so that's going to show up in the economy. So that's keeping this economic growth elevated. Now, there's nothing on the other side of this $1.7 trillion. So again, as the stimulus money's running out, now this federal, this 1.7 Inflation Reduction Act, that's going to run out. There's no other bills out there right now that are being tossed around that are going to increase more spending. So this kind of cliff here everybody's looking for is probably still out there, but it's probably going to be somewhere late 24, maybe even early 25. Could be sooner, depending on what happens with student loan payments. But again, that's we've got to get that money extracted out of that system in order for this kind of recession to pick up. So again, you know, the important thing to your point and, and the Fed's point and everything else is that that money, there's so much money in the economy right now, it's pushing that lag effect of everything the Fed has done out probably an extra 12 months from what it would have been normally. All right. So I'm going to I'm going to stop here sharing just to share my screen itself. So yep. this 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 is why I flagged this. I think last week we talked about the explainer video that I released about a week ago about this concept of stealth liquidity which really is what this this deficit spending is is providing to the system right now. So everybody who including ourselves really this year have been scratching our heads saying where the heck is this recession that seems so obvious it is getting pushed out by this this wall of liquidity as you've just said. Doesn't mean it's getting removed, right? That that we've dodged the bullet, it just means the bullet is its speed towards us has slowed, but it's still likely going to hit us at some point. So I want to share my screen real quick here to share a chart that Lisa Abramowitz um, shared. Uh, and so this shows you essentially that on the consumer stimulus side of things, mm -hmm. that the consumer pig is largely through the Python at this point in time. Right. Um, and I think the... Uh, I think that the National Bureau of Economic Research here says that the excess savings, which is all the green here, uh, that was uh, accumulated during the pandemic, uh, is is being spent, as you can see here in the red, and that uh, it should be fully spent by the end of September, right, right. by the end of this quarter. Um, then your partner, um, Michael Leibowitz, responded to this with a chart of his own um, here. 
um, basically saying, hey, by his calculations, it's actually already been spent. So I think he's using slightly different data sources, but they say basically the same thing, which yeah. is pig through the Python on the consumer side. Um, and you know, we've been talking a lot about this pig through the Python. So you would you, you would initially say, oh, okay, well then we can expect uh, you know, the recession to start arriving or, or, or the force of gravity to start really weighing on the economy because the, those accumulated savings aren't being spent anymore. But as we're saying, hey, not so fast, because now on the administrative side, there's trillions getting shoved into the system. So back to my analogy that we've been tracking the pig through the python. What we're now beginning to realize is, yes, there was a pig passing through, but the administration now has a funnel shoved into the, the mouth of the python and is cramming additional pork chops in. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and also too, there's, and again, I haven't done this analysis lately. I've done it previously. I'll have to go dig up my chart and maybe update it. Um, but it's not uncommon. In 2007, in the fourth quarter of December 2007, we had positive economic growth um, and actually growth upticked. And there was a lot of positive signs about the economy in December of 2007. A year later, in December of 2008, all that data was revised negative. Um, so again, you know, a lot of this data that we're looking at today is going to get revised negative in the next year or two or whenever or three years because they do annual and, and uh, triannual uh, revisions. But, you know, we'll, we'll likely see a very different picture emerge from all this. But, you know, the, the here and the now the, at the moment, you know, the economic data is, is very positive. There's nothing. And again, we have a lot of negative economic indicators, right? I mean, the LEI was still negative last month. Um, you know, but we're seeing Philly Fed improve here a bit. And that's not surprising. We just wrote an article about market cycles and economic cycles and when they get very oversold and, you know, you're going to get a bounce in the data. That's not going to be surprising. Um, and that's kind of what's going on here. But, you know, again, there's this and again, I haven't heard anything lately um, about student loan payments uh, in, in terms of any passages of, of new, you know, uh, bills or, or executive actions, et cetera, out of, out of the administration. And maybe I'm wrong, um, but as far as I know, a lot of those student loan repayments are still set to restart. In yeah, I haven't seen any news. I think right now it is still oh. on track to start, start. I think they go back into accumulating interest at the end of this month, and then the right. first payments have to be made by the beginning of October. Yeah, now I did get an email from a guy that says his student loan debt was just discharged. So. I haven't, like, again, I haven't, he, uh, again, that's just an email I got. So yeah. he just said, my student loan debt was discharged. I don't know how much it was for. There is some, there is some out there for like $40 million or something like that, that was related to um, a, a college that was taking a lot of student loan payments and then defaulted. Yeah. Nobody's tuition. Yeah, I know, I, I, I know I that's, that's an edge case right now is probably. Yeah. And, and, and so that, I know that's out there, but I'm talking about on the big bulk of the 44 million people out there that have student loans. I haven't seen any change. Maybe maybe I missed the headline. Maybe something happened. Um, but, you know, that's the that's, you know, when you combine that with, you know, the, the already kind of depleted savings and rising credit card balances. You know, I think we could see a very, you know, kind of a, a, a surprise maybe in the first, second quarter of next year is much slower economic growth than we expected. And, you know, we'll see how that translates into to unemployment. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be, I think, a real battle here between what I think is going to be increasing weakness in consumer spending versus, you know, 
all this deficit spending that's going more, you know, into the corporate side of, of the world right now. Um, of course, we say that, and then retail retail spending just kicked off one percent last month. So, you know, then yeah. there's but you know, back to school and all that stuff. So yeah. anyway, yeah, yeah, um, Amazon, Amazon Prime Day. So I own Amazon. Yeah. So um, just just on the, since you mentioned the student loans, um, I was interviewed yesterday. I had to pull some stats. There was a, a survey that just came out that CNBC reported on, um, which said that fifty six percent of student loan borrowers are saying that when they their loans go into repayment, they're going to be forced to make a decision between paying the loan or buying groceries. Yeah. Right. Um, that's pretty extreme. The number that really, though, got my attention was that 45%, I mean, almost half, are saying that my loans are going to, I expect my loan to become delinquent when it goes into repayment. Like, I'm just not going to be able to pay the thing, right? That's almost half. We're talking 40 million borrowers. We're talking, you know, almost $2 trillion. Don't put all your faith in a single survey. But I mean, those, it's hard not to expect this kind of economic, uh, you know, blow that you're expecting the consumer spending to take with loans going well, into repayment with people saying things like that. <laughs> yeah, well, I saw some really, really poor analysis on this last week by one of the major institutions. And, and it's always it's always not surprising. Everybody's always trying to figure out the positive spin to this. And, and so the analysis was is like, OK, yeah, the average payment for 44 million people is like, you know, three hundred dollars a month. But if you spread that out across everybody in the economy, it's only like 40 bucks a month that, you know, <laughs> that goes away. And, and the reason that's really bad analysis is this, is that what that assumes is, is that everybody else. So, so let's just say we've got two people in the economy. And so this person's got a student loan payment that's $300. So he says, okay, I'm going to pay my student loan payment. That takes $300 out of the system. What the what this analysis did was is shift that entire liability onto everybody else. So this assumes that if this guy cuts three hundred dollars, the other person's going to spend three hundred dollars more than they did last month. They're going to pick up the slack. Yeah. So that's really really bad analysis trying to nullify the impact of these student loan repayments. The the, the bottom line of this is that if things occur as the math suggests, and again there's you know, again, and you just brought up a good point. What if half the borrowers just say, screw it, I'm just not going to pay the payments. I'll just go into default, right? And they keep spending all their money in the economy. Well, that's that that's going to nullify the, the impact of what, what I'm about to say. But if we assume that those 44 million people have to pay their month, pay their payments every month, that's $12 billion that comes out of discretionary spending. That's just math. So you can't just extract $12 billion from the economy that's growing and say, oh, that's a minimal impact and that's not going to have any impact. And, and sorry, that, that's, 12, that's $12 billion a month you're talking that's about. That's $12 billion a month. And yeah. that's 70%. So remember, our economy, GDP, is 70% personal consumption. Of the PCE number, 40% of that is retail sales. So it is not a negligible impact to the economic outcome, and particularly to companies like Amazon or you know, uh, UPS or FedEx or anybody else that depends on discretionary spending uh, to, to to fuel revenues. Well, it, it, it'll be interesting. I mean, we'll obviously watch this really closely, but it'll be interesting, Lance, to your point about, uh, you know, how many people 
don't pay or go into to delinquency yeah. because as you've seen, I'm sure, you know, TikTok's full of videos of people saying, hey, if we just all band together and don't pay, they can't come after all of us, right? Right. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if that catches fire at all. I, I, I personally, I think that the people that adopt that strategy are going to find out very quickly probably wasn't the best choice for them, but we'll see. Well, you know, again, this goes back to, you know, one of the one of the problems with student loan debt is that it is the only debt that I am aware of that is not dischargeable through bankruptcy. Right. 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 Yeah. And so a lot of people, a lot of people are going to go, I'm just not going to pay my debt. Then they ruin their credit. Then they've got to file for bankruptcy. And then they're still stuck with the student loan debt. Which so, has been accruing the whole time they've been. Which is accruing the whole yeah. time. Yeah. So now you've really ruined yourself. You know, for God's sake, if you're not going to pay a debt, don't pay your credit card debt. The credit card companies will write that stuff off. Don't pay the student loan debt. That's much more important, financially speaking. Yep. Um, all right. So um, just to round out this part about the Fed, um, this just filed this under kind of trivia. But um, I did see a, a headline yesterday that uh, former Vice President Trump uh, was being President. interviewed about Powell and basically said, uh, hey, if I get reelected, I'm not reappointing the guy. Um, and uh, then it, and, and his reason why is he said he's always late in his policy actions. And, and obviously, that's a very common slam on the Fed is it's a slow follower. Their track record of the past couple of years, I think, would definitely support that. Um, but anyways, uh, criticized him for being always late and then said just to the cameras, you know, I'm not a fan of Jay Powell. Um, so just interesting, of course, Trump's the guy that put Powell in the, in, in the office there. Um, who knows what's going to happen? You know, with the election, it feels like it's forever away. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be here before we know it, but clearly the leading Republican candidate, not a fan. Well, and, and again, you know, the, the, you know, this is all a bunch of horse pucky. So, um, you know, the reason is, is that remember when Jay Powell was nominated for a Fed chair, everybody was like, oh, my gosh, this is great. He's so different than every right. other Fed chair. He wasn't any different. He did exactly what every every time somebody got in trouble. Hey, let's bail him out. Right. And, and so he was absolutely no different than any other Fed person. Look, they're all political animals. They serve at the pleasure of the president. So whatever the president says at the end of the day, they're going to go along with it. So. Yeah, he's going to nominate some. So if Trump got elected, or it doesn't matter who it is, whoever gets elected president, at some point, somebody's going to announce somebody different for that position. And guess what? It's going to be exactly the same type of person. Right. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Yeah, I just wanted exactly. to just sort of point out the irony that the guy who put him in place might be doesn't the guy like to, to remove yeah. him from office, right? If if Trump stays in the race and wins, and a lot of ifs there. Um all right. Uh, I want to move on to another topic now, um, which is sort of um, staying on the topic of, of valuations and where we think things are going. Um, a lot of focus on bonds right now. So I want to talk about bonds with you. Um, there was an interview that came out this week with um, former bond king. That title has been passed on to several people since he held it, but former bond king Bill Gross. Right. And Bill Gross basically said, hey, I'm actually bearish on bonds right now and I'm bearish on stocks. Yeah. And let me, also, let me tell you. Yeah, he was also bearish on bonds in 2013. Anyway, go ahead. OK, well, anyways, so, <laughs> you know, I'm going to tell you why he said he was bearish and I'm going to let you react, yeah. um, especially because you have a piece out this week that's very germane to this. Yeah. Um, so he said, look, uh, I, I, I don't like bonds largely because he thinks that um, rates will 
where yields will go higher from here, largely driven by this deficit spending that you and I have been talking about. He said he thinks fair value on the 10-year treasury is 4.5%, um, which is higher than where it is right now. It's not that much higher, right? So the, the, the bond, the, the bond yeah. issue isn't that big of a deal, but he's, he's basically saying, I still expect yields to rise a bit, prices to come down a bit. Then stocks, he said, I'm, I'm really bearish on stocks because I think they're way too overvalued relative to bonds. If you look at the equity risk premium right now, it's at like a 15 plus year low. And basically what that just means is you're getting compensated the lowest you've been in 15 years for taking on the risks of owning equities when instead you could be getting a much safer yield in bonds, right? So, um, he, you know, he's no, basically telling people like, hey, I'm, I'm not really telling anyone to go rush out and buy stuff right now. Love to get your reaction to that. But also then let's talk about your piece today, which is bonds are undervalued. And you actually make a really good case in there that, hey, now is actually a good time to be well, increasing and, your and, and, and you just made the case for buying bonds, right? You just said stocks are grossly overvalued. Bonds are undervalued. This is what Bill Gross said. But by the way, by the way, Bill Gross has been wrong on bonds. Right. Well, to be um, clear, though, Bill Gross didn't say bonds are undervalued. He just said stocks are way overvalued relative yeah. to bonds. But, you're but saying no, bonds but, are undervalued. Well, no, no, no. That's he said it right. When you say stocks are overvalued relative to bonds, you're saying that's saying stocks are overvalued, bonds are undervalued. You, you you can't say both are overvalued, right? Well, but 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 both could but both could yeah. decline in both could be poised to decline in absolute terms, right? Sure, in the short term. Right, you go to you go four and a quarter to four and a half. Right, that's a quarter point. You're going to get a minor depression on bond prices, but you're near the bottom, right? And that's because they're undervalued. Well, but, and, and sorry, we're cutting hairs here. All I want to say is, I'm not sure Gross was saying that, right? Where he, I think he was saying basically stocks are a lot more overvalued than bonds are. So relative to bonds, stocks are really overvalued. But I think you are making the case, which I want you to be able to make after you finish <laughs> reacting to gross, of why bonds are actually undervalued right now, and you see better days ahead. Yeah, and actually, uh, just by the way, I'm tagging on to that um, that article there. I've got another piece coming out next week that goes further into this about the deficit spending and all that. But this weekend's newsletter, which will be out tomorrow, is basically just going over why I double my. And again, you know, I, I talked about this last week on the show that you I did. double position in long bonds. And I'm wrote, I'm writing an entire piece this weekend explaining further my positioning on why um, I'm increasing my, my bond portfolio. And, and the, bond, the, the reason is simply is that bonds are extremely undervalued relative to their place in history, relative to stocks. Um, stocks versus bonds on a relative basis are the most distorted ever in, in, in history. So you know, there's just a case here. Again, when you, when you look at the valuation that you're paying to own stocks right now, there is a very big case. And that says, look, this doesn't mean that stocks are going to decline by 50%. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is, is that your return over the next 18 to 36 months could be vastly different between those two asset classes. In other words, there's about a 50% increase potential in bonds over the next 18 to 36 months. Now, listen to me, people. I'm not talking about next week right? 18 to 36 months, we're talking about one and a half to three years, your upside is 50% in bonds, your upside for stocks is probably somewhere closer to three to 4%. And that's just a function of where we are both economically, as well as financially and interest rate wise and inflation rise in the economy. When you're overpaying as much as you are now for stocks, your forward, your forward return structure is going to be fairly low, could be a lot worse. But again, when the Fed starts cutting rates, which they will, 
um, when you get your recession that you've been wanting, which you probably will at some point, or you just get a, a really good economic slowdown, or the Fed just stops hiking rates, those are historically all really good time for rates to start coming back down because money will flow into bonds as a function of value, safety, and protection. And so that's going to be the case ultimately going forward. But the distortion between stocks and bonds is so great right now that your forward return over one and a half to three years is going to, be, is, is going to outperform stocks over that same holding period. All right. Um, so I think it's important that I say this for you to react to. Um, yeah. What I hear from all that is that Lance Roberts likes bonds now. Yeah. He prefers bonds to stocks. Not that you're not going to own stocks in your portfolio yeah. going forward. Still own stocks. Yeah. Yep. But, but you are you are you are saying you're rubbing your hands together and saying I'm now beginning to see the setup, a setup that we don't get to see very often in markets where one asset class, one major asset class, has potentially far better prospects ahead of it yeah. than the other. But again, you know this. But this is where everybody. This is where the mistakes are made, right? Every time there's an uptick in bond bond yields, okay, from one day to the next, bond yields are going to tick up or down because of just the market dynamics. So you got you got the buyer, you got a seller, whatever's going on. So ticks, you know, rates are going to tick up or down. Uh, some news-driven headline may cause bond yields to tick up or down for that particular day. Um, and then again, I get I get a flood of emails. It's like, oh well, interest rates went up an eighth of a point over the last week. Does this change your whole view on bonds? No. It actually makes it better. The cheaper they get, the better the return is going to be. So I would actually love yields to go to 5%. That'd be awesome. You're going to completely crap out the rest of the economy at 5%, but the bonds will be super cheap at that point. So, you know, it doesn't change dynamics. I've been beating this horse since last year. You know, you don't get these type of opportunities. These are, you know, it's interesting if you have a 50% drawdown in stocks, everybody goes, oh, that's a generational opportunity to buy stocks. I want to own stocks because stocks are cheap. You get a generational buying opportunity in bonds. Bonds are like, everybody's like, oh, I don't want to own bonds because they're just going to go lower. That's the exact psychology you want. Every time you have a big bear market in stocks, you remember this, Adam. In, in 2008, during that financial crisis, everybody's like, oh, the market's going to zero. It's just going to keep going down forever. This is It's all over, folks. And, that, and again, we were saying March in February of 2009, Time to buy stocks, right? Here's eight reasons you want to own stocks over the next decade. And that was a great buying opportunity. But again, as investors, we always do psychologically exactly the opposite of what we should do because we think that once prices are moving in one direction, they're just going to continue to go in that direction forever. And that's never the case. You've got a setup in bonds that you are not going to get. Once this occurs and you begin to get the, the retraction in yields, it's not going to be an opportunity you're going to see for the next 20 years again. Okay, so good. I want to really put that underlined under this, that you see this as a rare window of opportunity the market is presenting us for this year. Obviously, folks will, will track it very closely going forward from here. Um, eight, but not next week. It's going to be 18 to 36 months, folks. It's going to take yeah, time. So, so, so this is something to, you know... Yeah. Maybe dollar cost average your way in here. Yeah. Um, expect you know volatility. Expect, rates could go higher from here, right? Um, I'll, I'll and, ask you about. We'll talk about this in a minute. But I, I just saw an article this morning where Lawrence Young, who's the chief economist for the National Association of Realtors, you can tell when the the NAR, which is like the most perennially optimistic you know uh, institution around housing prices, you can tell they're getting nervous when. 
their chief economist starts really publicly freaking out about mortgage rates going up to 8%. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he's, he's waving that flag now. I mean, Jesus, that, that, that really, I mean, that, that that's, that's going to hurt a lot of people. That is definitely going to have knock-on effects um, in the housing market. My point, though, is, is that yields could go higher from here for some period of time. So to Lance's point, don't interpret his comments as buy a stock to, a bond today because tomorrow, literally tomorrow, yields are going to start coming down. Um, so uh, I, I know people are wondering, Lance, I want you to address this if you can. All right. So is Lance saying buy bonds directly or is he saying goodbye like a bond ETF? We've talked about TLT a lot in this program. There are a lot of people just just being real honest, you know, who heard us talking about TLT at the end of last year. And I think, you know, have said, hey, well, I bought some and man, it really isn't performing all that well right now. So they're, they're definitely feeling some wounds. I'm guessing you're going to tell those people just have patience. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. I, I, you know, this is the, this is exactly the point of investing. Right. And, and, you know, we all say that we're long term investors. And then so I buy a position and it's not working right now. So, oh, my gosh, you know, whatever. You know, but you got. But if you're investing long term, if you're looking for long term opportunity, that's something that's going to make you money over time and make you a lot of money potentially. I mean, you know, when Warren Buffett buys a company, if it doesn't work right, I mean, Occidental Petroleum hasn't worked great since Warren Buffett bought it. You don't see him dumping his whole position of the company, right? He's he like, oh, well, you know, I, I bought this company, and you know, geez, I, I bought it last month, and they just didn't really turn it around. So I'm just going to sell the whole company now. You know. He buys a company, says, I'm going to own this for 100 years, right? That's my view for this. And uh, and and this is because I'm buying fundamental cheap and it's going to be good. So if your whole view is to buy something and immediately make money on it, don't listen to me because I'm a long-term investor. I'm not day trading these positions. Um, but, you know, relative to what, what you're doing now, I mean, we're, this, we're having this conversation internally right now. We're thinking about selling TLT, Right. But you got to hear the other half of the story. See, I don't want you to run out and go, oh, he's going to sell TLT. He's, he's, he's given up on his trade. No, we're going to extend duration even further because the longer my duration is, the better my return is going forward. So if I can take 10 to 20 years and turn that into 20 or 30 years, then my return when rates go down is even that much greater. So there's we're having a, a really serious internal discussion right now about how to effectively restructure the portfolio because we only have so much money, right? So we've, we we can't just magically create more money in people's portfolios and go, we'll just add another position. Uh, so we're talking about restructuring the, the bond section of the portfolio to extend that duration even further because of where we are on rates right now, potentially what comes out of that. Now, part of that will be for some people that'll be buying individual treasuries. Um, no problem with that. If you want to buy individual treasuries, that's, that's awesome. Uh, because even if wrong and my whole thesis completely has blown up and you know at some point in the future you get all your money back in the meantime you just clip five percent on your money nothing wrong with that um you know but it will also be using etfs uh to work the differentials in you know some of the duration matching that we're trying to get to so um how we restructure this ultimately will be the question but that's an exercise that we're starting to explore in much more detail next week all right. Do you do you have? I'm just curious for folks that are interested. You, 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 I'm sure you picked up a couple of folks' uh, attention here. Um, if you were to sell TLT to get into an ETF that's even longer duration, are there any tickers out there? These aren't. You're not recommending this. This is just for people to go look at. 
Yeah, no, we're, we're probably going to look at something like uh, the Vanguard Long Duration uh, ETF, which is Edward David Victor EDV. Okay. And again, but there's there's several on the list that we're analyzing. We, we and For us, because of the size of our firm and how much we have to trade in a day to you know fill client portfolios, we've got to have something with a good bit of trading volume to it. So um, we're several that we're kind of looking for. EDV right now is kind of running the running the lead because of its uh, you know, because it's Vanguard and it's a very large company and and probably stable. So it allows us to get into it and out of it without moving price too much. A deep float and all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. And, and plus, I'm just pissed off at BlackRock, so I don't want to own any more of their ETFs in the future. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. Um, okay. So um, uh, we. I just want to really clarify for folks. I think we've been talking mostly here, and we're saying bonds. We're yeah. talking U.S. government yeah. bonds here. Yes. Um, not talking, not talking corporates. We're talking about government yeah. bonds. But let's talk about corporates for a second. Do you see a similar opportunity in in the corporate world? And of course, you have to take company risk, you know, into account there. But but let's look at companies like a Apple or a Microsoft who just you know have very good risk profiles. Yeah. Would you expect to see similar performance here? Yeah, and, and again, there's there's some great companies out there. I like corporate bonds. We own corporate bonds. We own some Fannie home loan bonds. Uh, and, and, um, we own some other types of structures as well. Um, but you know, and the the yield pickup between taking on the corporate risk and having a risk free asset as a treasury bond is really not there. You're really not getting paid enough differential. Um, you know, there's over not the enough, there's not enough risk premium. Yeah, there's really not uh, to pick up a corporate bond. The spreads haven't really blown out. Now that'll happen uh, when we have a recession. You'll get a spread blowout, which at that point we'll probably you know we'll we'll sell our treasuries at that point. When yields come down, we'll sell our treasuries entirely because there'll be no more there, there'll be no, no more gain in it, right? So so yeah. at that point, there's really no reason on treasuries at that point. But corporate bonds will have been blown out in terms of yield. So we'll be actually able to buy some higher yield in corporates because the prices have fallen because of concerns about bankruptcy or default or whatever it is. And so there'll be a shift in the portfolio from treasuries to corporates, uh, convertibles, those type of things when you get to that type of environment. All right. So let's let's actually just talk about that for a second, because I, I interviewed Michael Gayad a few days ago on the channel, and he talked about how he was actually looking forward to the day where he was going to buy high yield debt yeah. um, because he was going to wait for the spreads to blow out. And he said, generally, there's kind of a throw out the baby with the bathwater, you know, when people get real fearful and those credit spreads explode and they overcorrect. Right. right. And so then you can come in and you can actually, you know, buy a high yield debt fund or ETF. Right. And then you can ride the reequilibration as the market begins to realize, OK, we probably got a little bit carried away there. Maybe the world's not ending quite the way that we thought. And then those spreads begin to contract again, and the price obviously goes up. Right. Yeah, no, no. Uh, it, it, again, that, that's going to be the case. You know, uh, back in 2008 is a good example of that. You know, there was just a tremendous amount of opportunities that companies were just, everybody thought everybody was going bankrupt. And so there were a lot of bonds that were trading at 60, 70 cents on the dollar that had no bankruptcy risk whatsoever. And we made a lot of money, you know, trading those corporate bonds back then. So yeah, you know, when we get into that kind of recessionary blow off, there'll be a lot of companies out there trading at discounts. Um, we'll be looking for broken convertible bonds that, you know, are going to provide some great capital appreciation opportunity. Uh, but again, that's but again, you don't want to own treasuries in that environment because, 
the yields will be below 1%. So again, there's no capital gain to be made on treasuries. So it'll be sell all the sell all the treasury bonds and look to buy corporates. Right. Unless you just want to get four and a half, five percent on your money, you know. Yeah, but I can buy a good I can buy Exxon Mobil trading at 80 cents of the dollar and pick up six. Yeah, and that that you're right. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, look, folks, we will be tracking that for everybody as the future unfolds here. Um, but but very I interesting point. And again, I just want to underline for everybody, I think it's official. Lance is saying bonds is, is where he thinks it's at. And that's where he's placing a lot of, you know, his firm's focus going forward. We'll keep you updated as. And and please, and please do not follow or do not follow what I do because, you know, it'll just save you a lot of grief in the meantime. So. <laughs> no, no. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best. It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line, it's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI, it's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Well, but no, I mean, seriously, uh, you know, if, if, if you want to follow any of the advisors that we have on the program here, the best way to do that is to you know talk to them, potentially decide if you want to work with them. Um, feel free to use anything we're talking about here as inspiration for, you know, decisions you may make. But again, folks, this is an educational program. We are not giving personal financial advice here. So just don't blindly copycat a soundbite you hear on this program or anywhere on the internet, obviously, right? And and, and again, and just this last point on this, and we'll let it go. You got to have the right timeframe view. You know, don't buy bonds today if your view is to try to make money next week. That's just not the way this is going to work. You've got to give this. You got to enter. You got to enter this environment going. I'm in this for two to three years because you. This is all based on economics and inflation, and the economy has to slow down a lot more in order to get the environment right for yields to fall back towards basically sub two percent. We'll get there. That's just a function of time, but you need, that's the key word. You got to have time. Yeah. And, and is it fair to say the type of dynamic that you see is likeliest to play out here? It's one where you're going to have to kind of have your position built in advance to really take advantage of it. In other words, it's not going to be something where there's a a warning gun that goes off and that someone on the sidelines could say, oh, that's the signal now to get in bonds. You, you kind of yeah. have to already have your position built beforehand because it's going to happen relatively quickly. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there you'll have an opportunity to say, you know, now's the time to get the bonds. And you'll start hearing it on TV, you know, bonds are, you know, doing great, blah, blah, blah. And Bill Gross will come out and he'll finally say, Oh, yeah, it's time to buy bonds. And the problem with that is, is you know, you'll you'll have gone from four and a quarter to three on interest rates. And then everybody will become very obvious that we're now back in a bull market in bonds, but now you've already given up half your return. That's my point. Yields will probably stop going down at two. You'll still be able to make some good money, right? But you know you're going to give up half your gain by the time you realize it's time to buy. Got it. Okay. Well, look. Last thing I wanted to say on this point is is um, I, you know I didn't know exactly what you were going to say when I started asking these questions, but I I read an article this morning. I can't remember who wrote it, but it was interesting. They said, okay, the progression has gone from Tina. Right. Well, there where there is no alternative but being in stocks because bonds yeah. yielded nothing to Tara, which is now there there are reasonable alternatives. Right. Yeah. You now can invest in bonds and get a pretty good return, a good safety. 
to now Tala, which is the alternatives look awesome. Yeah. <laughs> You're basically saying the same thing. All right, so now I want to get into some of the economic storm clouds that um, are on the horizon here. We'll just dial through them briefly. Um, <clears throat> but uh, banks, um, money market in inflows in the money markets continue to increase while bank deposits are continuing to decrease. So we have this sort of, you know, alligator jaws that are continuing to widen, right? That's not good for the banking system. Uh, usage of the BTFP, the Bank Term Funding Program, if I'm remembering that acronym right, this was the emergency banking uh, liquidity vehicle that the Fed set up after the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and a few other banks. Uh, that usage is now at record highs. Um, so it's interesting. I'm going to put up a chart here, but it shows that the correlation between um, bank reserves at the Fed and the U.S. equity markets is diverging. You can see from this chart, it's been very tightly coupled up until recently. Now there's a pretty big convergence. Of course, the big question is, is, is that going to converge again? Uh, will it reconverge by equities dropping from here? Um, and I just also want to note, I'm going to put up another chart, then I'll let you respond, Lance. Um, the last time that yields were here uh, and accelerating higher as fast as they are right now, that was when we saw the mini banking crisis that happened earlier. Um, it was right before you know, the, the banking crisis started where the, the bank started to fail. So are we kind of up in that rarefied territory now where things are starting to could be starting to break in the banking system? So everything I just put up there basically suggests the banks maybe are not through the woods yet on you know some of the challenges they're facing. What do you think? No, no I think you're right. And I think that's, you know, that's one of the things that we uh, you know, didn't really address earlier is that, you know, as the Fed hikes rates and as interest rates go up, you know, this the Fed's got, you know, we're talking about the Fed's not going to cut rates anytime soon. There is a reason why the Fed could cut rates a lot sooner than we think, which would also, by the way, be very good for bonds. Right. Um, and that's specifically credit risk. And, you know, if you go back in history, whenever the Fed has hiked rates aggressively, there's always been some type of crisis event. And again, this goes all the way through history. And I've posted charts about this before where I show the Fed rate hikes and then those always, wherever the Fed stops hiking rates, there's generally a, a crisis event of some sort, whether it was long-term capital management, the Asian contagion, the, the bond market crash of 1994, recession in 91, uh, you know, the, the dot-com crash, you know, the financial crisis. And so every time the Fed hikes rates, there's always a problem uh, because they tend to go too far. Then the Fed has to cut rates to try to solve that problem. Well, the Fed's at that point where another rate hike or two could break more of the banks. Um, if interest rates in the 10-year treasury keep going up, that could certainly break a lot of banks. This is one of the reasons why I keep saying rates cannot go to 5 or 6 or 7% on the 10-year treasury. There's just too much debt out there. There's, there's so much debt that was financed at low rates that once those rates go up and that interest service goes up, it begins to really cause problems. But for the banks, it's about collateral. And this was, and so we have to go back to March. Why did we have this little mini banking crisis back in March? It was because the collateral values, they, they didn't have, these weren't bad banks. These weren't banks that had made a bunch of bad loans that were blowing up. They had treasury sitting on their books. It was the collateral they were lending against because we use fractional reserve banking. That collateral value fell and they fell out of tolerance with their tier one capital requirements. And so the, they said, hey, got to lock you up because you don't have enough capital to support your books. And this is why, 
the, the bank term funding program is not giving money to the banks. They're not, they're not injecting capital into banks. They're saying, okay, will you give us your collateral that is discounted and we'll give you a loan at full face value. So it'll be like we didn't have any interest rate hikes. And so that's what that bank term funding program is doing. It's giving loans to the banks so they can stay in business, continue to function and operate. But if rates keep going up, you're going to start having more and more banks wrapped up in declining collateral values and, and falling outside the bounds of their tier one capital requirements. And that's going to cause the Fed to go, OK, we're done. We've got to cut rates. We've got to do this. We've got to stop doing QT and start buying bonds. We've got to, you know, we'll have to go back into some emergency program if that bank contagion begins to spread out. That also won't be good for stocks. Again, great for bonds, bad for stocks. But that's that's the risk that the Fed is running right now. And again, this is why I don't think that the Fed is going to hike rates anymore. They could hike one more time, depending on what happens with inflation. But I really think the Fed's probably done here at five, five, five and a quarter. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting just to sort of repeat what you said, which is I imagine it gives you even more confidence in your bond trade because yeah. you're like, look, yeah. I mean, if in the short term interest rates are going up and my bond prices are going against me, I'm not that worried because I think the higher they go, the more likely it's going to trigger some really serious crisis that's going to force the Fed to bring rates down and therefore, you know, make make my positions shoot the moon. So in a perverse way, you're, you you almost might want to root for higher rates in the short term. Well, and I think it's just important to go back in history. You know, everybody talks about this idea where somehow we're going to wind up in this magical fantasy land where rates just go up and stay up at a certain level for decades. It's never happened. Ever, you know, rates go up and then they come down and then they may go up again, but then they come down again. And it's fairly sharp. I mean, they, they hit a point, something breaks, rates come down. So uh, again, you know, and, and we're not in the 70s. We do not have a 60% of debt to income type ratio for right. households where it's 150. So, you know, you don't have the ability to sustain high rates for very long and, and you're well past the breaking. And we're with surveys and what's going on with households. You're passing that point to where when money runs out, it's going to get serious really quick. Okay. So talking about it getting serious really quick, um, and I don't have much time left here, so I'm going to have to just get your really quick reaction to this. Yep. Um, China. China, all of a sudden, back in the headlines, they've got some pretty big um, shoes dropping over there. Uh, the Chinese real estate market, biggest asset in the world. Um, all of a sudden, there's some big players in that ecosystem that are really starting to fail here. Evergrande, which got all the headlines last year, I think at the end of 2021, and everybody was wondering, oh my gosh, could that bring down the, the Chinese uh, you know, banking system or real estate market? Um, it's kind of been limping along ever since, but they just declared bankruptcy today in US court. So obviously that company's still struggling. Um, the largest property developer in China, Country Garden, has just gone into default. And one of the largest players in China's shadow banking system, uh, it's a bank that's owned by a, a big master company called Zhongzhi Enterprise Group, uh, is also apparently in default right now. So all of a sudden, there are really big dominoes that are starting to fall over there. Um, so uh, as part of this, as I mentioned, the Chinese real estate market's largest asset in the world, China's high yield real estate index is down a massive 82% in just over two years, that this puts the index back down to 2008 levels. 
Um, all while China just unexpectedly cut interest rates. This author here uh, from Bloomberg is, is asking, is China on the brink of a credit event? Um, we don't know exactly at this point in time. China's famously opaque, but all of a sudden, the news that's coming out of there is all of a sudden very kind of scary. And this is a big enough part of the Chinese economy that it, if it goes down, it, it is hard to not expect this to have a pretty knock-on effect not just to China's economy, which is one of the largest in the world, but to the global economy itself. Any quick highline takeaways? Well, if yeah. this continues, we'll make it a big feature of next week. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. But you know, the, the look, there's there's a, a very big correlation between China China liquidity and and markets worldwide. So you know, as they you know, and one thing that China is always very good about is you know bailing out everything, right? They 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 react very quickly, and they either require their corporations or their institutions, pension funds, whatever they have. Uh, to, to immediately start buying assets, so you know it'll be it'll be interesting to watch how they deal with this. But uh, this is also another good a good position for bonds because that's going to force more more money into U.S. bonds um, out of that currency as concerns over economic weakness. You know, people go, I don't want my money in the Chinese yuan. If this is going on, they're going to go somewhere else and they're going to go to the U.S. dollar and and ultimately U.S. bonds. And that's why the dollar's been rallying as of late too. So. Yeah, to that point, sorry to interrupt, but but they are now seeing the biggest FX currency outflows from China in over a year. So exactly what you're talking about is happening. Exactly. And and the reason that, and, and so I can't necessarily, you know, if I, if I transfer my yuan to U.S. dollars, I've got to store it somewhere so it gets stored in bonds because uh, that's U.S. dollar kind of storage. So, so that's actually kind of all good for bonds. But no, we're watching that very closely because China liquidity has a, has a big knock-on effect. So you know, we, we talked about how this market could struggle over the next month or so. That's a function of what's happening in China. If that continues to accelerate, deteriorate, we may, you know, it may change our outlook for the end of the year. But, you know, th and this is why predicting anything more than a month or two is impossible. But, you know, right now, this correctional process that we're going through, it could last well into September because of some of these other liquidity issues that are happening. Okay, great. And I just want to kind of bring all this up because you said earlier, you know, when you look at a lot of the kind of headline data right now, it doesn't seem like there's anything wrong, I think is what you said. And and that is true looking at a lot of the headline data like, you know, 5.8% projected GDP growth for next quarter or whatnot. Well, what, what's but, your but there, my point is there's just lots of other things out there, dominoes that could fall, that could change that outlook relatively quickly. This, I think, is one of them. Well, again, you know, and again, when I say the headline media, I'm talking about what you hear on CNBC every day, right? Right. So, exactly. You know, all you hear on CNBC is, oh, oh, retail sales were booming, and the consumer's great, and the economy's going at five point eight percent, and it's it's all awesome. Um, but again, it's it's eventually what happens is is something pops up that really nobody's paying attention to. Could be China, um, could be something else, and all of a sudden it just derails that whole narrative very quickly, and people go, oh crap, I got to sell. And then that's where you get that rush from the buy room to the sell room. And that big crowd has to fit through a very narrow door. And, and that's that becomes the problem for the markets. And, and th this was something I really was looking forward to having fun talking about with you today that we are going to have to punt uh, just for time reasons, sadly. But um, I, I've had a string of, of interviews recently that have all, all kind of coalescing together. And an important one of them was the one with Peter Atwater, his behavioral economist. And he talks about the importance of story. And he's just basically like, you know, that's what people react to is story. And when the story that people accept starts to shift, 
um, that is when change happens, right? It's when people finally give up the one story that they've been living by and begin to adopt another one. And we're starting to see kind of a lot of the story shifting that we would expect to see in a fourth turning. And of course, we interviewed Neil Howe, you know, two weeks ago um, with, about his latest book about how the fourth turnings here were right smack in the middle of it. And this type of kind of Stat, the status quo that that has been leaned on and trusted for so long begins to erode and, and all of a sudden it, it collapses and needs to be replaced by something else. We're beginning to see sort of some of the milestones along this way that we would expect. I did a video, a, a special video last weekend just in response to the um, uh, the song that came out of nowhere, the Richmond from North, uh, the Richmond, for, Richmond North of Richmond. Um, from an unknown artist that you know suddenly went to number one on on iTunes and you know took the internet by storm, and it really is a working class lament and and pointed accusation against uh, kind of the status quo of our political system. And again, these are again just sort of signs of increasing instability uh, or, or or maybe phase changes and in instability that you would expect to see in a fourth turning. I'm going to have to just leave it at that. I'll give you 30 seconds to chime in on that in any way you like, but maybe we can really dive into that no, next I, week, Lance. Yeah, no, I was going to say, absolutely. That's a great topic. I've got lots of uh, opinion about the fourth turning. I know you and, and And again, it's, and it is where we are. Unfortunately, it is what it is. But yeah, no, that deserves a, a full show that we can spend an hour, hour and a half on. Okay. Um, man, I had another one too, uh, that I'll just quickly mention, and then we'll get to your trades and wrap it up. Um, so, uh, my wife, she's fine. She was in a car fender bender the other day. And, um, there's just three rants to pack into this very short story. Um, cars totaled. Um, it's not cause they, it's not cause the car functionally doesn't work. Um, it was a Chevy Volt, which I, I loved. Um, and uh, I, I, I like right after we bought it, like a month later, they announced they weren't going to make any more. So I was like, oh, it's a collectible now <laughs> and looking forward to having it forever. And uh, but, it, you know, it's largely an EV, right? It's 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 it, it's not a hybrid like a Toyota hybrid, but it actually has two different engines in it. But it's the drivetrains, all electric, big battery. Um, uh, the cost of fixing the cost of repairs. Uh, for EVs is just oftentimes just prohibitively high. So the insurance company just said yeah, it's fixable, but the the cost to fix it's worth more than the car itself. So here's a check, right? We're declaring it totaled. Um, I, I think that's a good parable for a lot of what's going on right now with kind of the the the, the green economy, where we're beginning to realize that the the total return of a lot of of the investment that's being pursued isn't quite as as uh, positive uh, as we thought it was. And um, I think that's going to be causing kind of a reevaluation of what's going on. And we don't have time to get into this, but you know, I'll just share with people. I think we should be pursuing alternative sustainable forms of energy whenever it makes sustainable, energetic, and economic sense. I think we're learning that a lot of the current projects that are being enthusiastically pursued may not meet one and sometimes potentially either of those two. Again, story for a different day. Um, but the other thing that, that this thing has caused me to really learn is, yeah, auto prices have just gone insane <laughs> in the past couple of years. It, it is, it is like, I just don't know. We're going to be okay, but I just don't know how the regular person is affording any kind of car these days at the prices that I'm seeing out there, both new and used. It's freaking ridiculous. 
I know you probably have stuff to say about that, but we don't have time. So real quick, can you give us your trades? Sure, absolutely. So uh, we're we just like I said, we're you know we've been using this correction in the market like we talked about back in July. Um, so now that it's here, we've been using this kind of a pullback here over the last week to to reposition our portfolio. So, uh, for instance, like we own small cap stocks. So we own companies like Stanley Black and Decker. We own a couple of small regional banks that we bought during the March crisis. Um, so we also had a position in IWM. So we sold IWM. And we're actually switching that into Lennar, which is a home builder. And Lennar had a decent correction after uh, the, this past week. So we're build, starting to build a position in that. They're going to announce earnings uh, later uh, this month. But, you know, there's a shortage of, again, as you kind of look at what's going on, people in the existing home space can't sell their houses because they can't afford the mortgage on a new house. So people are being forced to buy new homes and, and new home builders are offering terrific incentives. You can get a four and a half percent loan from a new home builder to buy a house. Right. And I think that's what people understand is, is that people are buying new homes because they're basically giving them lower mortgages. Exactly. And and so that and, and so what we're seeing there, again, home builders themselves are, are dramatically under they're very cheap. They trade at like eight times earnings. So um you know they're very they're very cheap, pay a dividend. So we needed to switch a little bit of our portfolio uh, away from interest rate sensitive items and, and small cap, mid cap stocks are very sensitive to interest rate changes and economic changes. Uh, so we also consolidated, we had two utility companies. Uh, we had Nextera Energy and Duke. So we consolidated Nextera into Duke. And then we also bought Cisco Systems this week, which is the networking company, because if you're going to have AI, you got to have networks. So we bought a small position to start with in Cisco. So again, just we're just kind of remodeling the portfolio a little bit for kind of getting set up for the end of the year and kind of what we expect will happen in terms of uh, kind of uh, portfolio uh, and, and market movement heading into December as we wrap up this year. All right, great. Thanks, thanks for walking through all that. Folks, I'm sorry to be ending this so quickly. We just have some time constraints that we're bumping up against here, Lance. Lance, I know you got to go. So if you want to hop while I'm kind of landing the plane here, feel free to do so. Um, folks, as we wrap up, I do just want to mention a couple of free resources for you. One, uh, Lance and I have talked about how his team uh, is going to be, we had a lot of interest in uh, doing a, a webinar on elder care, like basically caring for senior parents, lining all that up along with the commensurate, you know, what estate planning stuff should we be thinking of? How do we, you know, deal with their healthcare needs and whatnot, end of life issues, all of that. Your demand was so high that we finally picked the date. It is going to be next week. So uh, when we have this uh, in this slot next week, we're going to have that that webinar uh, instead. Um, the Wealthion Fall Conference is now available for purchase. Uh, to go learn more about it and buy your tickets at the early bird discount price, just go to wealthion.com slash conference. If you're an alumnus of one of our previous conferences, be sure to check your email because we have a coupon code in there for you to get an additional 10% discount off of the early bird price. Um, and then just as we always do at the end of every week, folks, highly recommend that you work with a professional financial advisor in navigating all of these markets uh, and all the issues that Lance and I have been talking about here. If you don't have a good advisor who's already doing that for you, consider scheduling a free consultation with one of the ones that Wealthy and endorses, maybe even Lance and his team there at RIA. To do that, just fill out the short form over at Wealthion 
www.ethicalcoachingcenter.com. Only takes a couple of seconds. These consultations totally free. No commitment to work with these guys. Just a free public service they offer. If you enjoy these conversations with as soft-spoken and shy and demure a guy as Lance and would like to see us continue this, please vote for that by hitting the like button and then clicking on the red subscribe button as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Lance, you're still here, buddy. Thanks so much for being with us. Any parting words for folks? Nope, uh, just uh, you know, hang tight here. And then again, uh, we'll pick up week after next, but we'll definitely get into all these other topics you want to get into. And we'll have a lot to talk about with the markets between now and then as well. So just you know, be patient. Don't, don't be overly excited about what's happening. We're working through a correction. And you know, hopefully by the time I come back with you week after next, we'll be talking about a market bottom short term. So we'll see. All right, great. Well, we will see. Um, Lance, I'll see you next week for that. Everyone else, thanks so much for watching.